Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless us as we look at your word. Let your spirit lead and guide us as we examine it and show us what you'd have us to see. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus 26, starting at verse 27. Now remember before we were talking on the rewards for obedience, and he started on to the, the, the punishments for disobedience. We're going to continue looking at this uh, section. Verse 27, And if you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you in fury, and even I will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries into desolation. I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall your land enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lies desolate, and you shall be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. Okay, we're going to stop there for a moment and just start looking at some of this, because there's a lot here, and probably a lot more. Huh? Very angry. Well, this is also, when we look at that this is prophecy, if you really, if you saw the prophecy in it, we're going to look at how it is prophecy. Okay? So he says, and if you will not for all of this, you've been disobedient and I've, and I've punished you, and if you don't do this, I will walk, and you walk, and not hearken to me, but walk contrary. That's, that's strong language, walking contrary. Uh, this means to be walking in an opposite, in opposition to you know, and if you've ever seen somebody or been around somebody who's always contrary, it's they're very hard to be around. You say yes, they say no. You say go right, they say go. I'm going left. Uh, I want dinner. I want to have dinner. No, I don't want to eat right now. But then five minutes later, I'm ready to eat. Uh, you know, the contrary person is like whatever you say or do or want to do, they want to do the opposite at that moment. And God's saying, if you want to be that way with me, then I will be that way with you. And, you know, we talked a lot about this in last, last time when God was saying, you know, he gave them blessings. If they obeyed him, they wouldn't, he would get rid of the wild animals. They would be productive. They would have large families and all this long list of stuff. And then he says, but if you don't, the wild animals will be in your land. You won't have large families. You won't be productive. And then he's going on and says, by the way, and if after all of this, you still want to walk contrary to me, Okay, and this is God saying, I've, I've judged you, but the purpose of the judgment was not to destroy you. It was to get you to repent. And again, we've talked about this in the Revelation class. The purpose of the tribulation period is not to destroy man, not that God is angry with him and says, you know, just let me beat him up for a while. It is, I want you to come back. I want you to repent. And this is God's activity always. When he brings judgment upon us, it's always to bring us to him. He's not saying, you know, I'm out there, I'm, I'm, I'm this really bad father who just loves punishing you. Okay, and this is something I've told people. If, if you're the type of person who enjoys punishing your kids, 
don't punish your kids because you're not going to be punishing your kids. You are, you know, doing something wrong. And I've said it over and over. You know, I used to hate when my dad would say, "This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you." And I'm, you know, and I'm a teen, you know, young kid, teenager, going, "Yeah, right. I'm the one that's going to be sore." You know. And then I remember the very first time I had to give one of my kids a spanking, and I understood what my dad was saying about, "It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you," because I did not want to hurt my children. But I knew that without pain, there would be no learning. And we do it even in the workforce. You know, a boss does it in the workforce. Pain, sending somebody home early, you know, not, or, not, or giving them less hours or, or suspending them. It has a direct correlation with not having money on payday. Uh, and not having money on payday means your bills don't get paid. So any discipline has to have some element of pain being caused for somebody to realize that it is discipline. discipline that is trying to teach them something. So when God says, I'm going to do all these things because you disobey, it's not because he's this big angry guy up there, you know, up in the sky saying, well, I just can't wait to make these guys hurt. It's come back to me. <laughs> you're not doing what I said, and here's the discipline. And then he says, but if you're going to continue, you want to continue. You want to get contrary. And this is where we're getting into a prophecy here in Leviticus. God knew that the people were not going to obey him. And all of judges, all of kings, all of chronicles is all about the people drifting into idolatry, disobeying God, getting punished, coming back to God, getting a good king or good ruler, getting back into their fellowship, drifting back away from God and being punished until the end of it when he says, that's it, I've had enough. God is extremely patient. And this is why when you, when, whenever I have somebody tell me that the Bible, that the Old Testament is nothing but law and a, and a God of wrath, I, I will tell them you have never read the, the Old Testament. He has been so patient, so kind, so compassionate to the people, allowing them decades to, to before he finally punishes them. You know, and we look at this, what has he done for America? As America has drifted further and further away, he's waited more than a century to give us what we deserve. And people are going to be, well, God, why were you so mean to us? You know, well, uh, he's not exactly been mean. He's been very, very kind for a long time. And he says, you know, if you want to continue walking contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. And then it says, also in fury. That means hot rage. You know, when he finally, when things finally break, then he comes down with a great rage. When the people of Israel were taken into captivity, he sold them into captivity. Uh, they're going to go into captivity into Babylon for how many years? Does anybody remember? 400. Not to Babylon. 70, 70 years. And why did they go into captivity for seven years? 70 years? Didn't obey what? They didn't, let the land rest. they didn't obey the Sabbath to let the land rest every seven years. And that meant in the 490 years that they were in existence, they did not let the land rest. And God says, okay, you didn't let the land rest. I'm going to let it rest. And this is the prophecy. This is what this is all about. As you read this, this is what that is about. He's, he's, he, they haven't even got into the promised land yet. At this point, they've still promised to obey God. 
they're in Sinai. And God is telling them, you know, we look back at this and say, oh, yeah, they didn't obey the first ones, and they did disobey God, and he did send judgments, and they walked contrary to them, and he had to send them into judgment. And why did he send them into judgment? Right here. And he says, I will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. Cannibalism. And if you've read anything in those latter judgments, there were more than one time that there was cannibalism in Jerusalem because they were under siege. And they, and they're, and they would ran out of food. And you know, we don't understand the idea of siege, siege warfare. They would go, the way they conquered more cities, they didn't usually just throw bombs and everything at them because they didn't have bombs. They would throw rocks in them. They would throw you know, oil, oil and fire over the, the walls to start fires. But the biggest thing they did is they got them trapped inside their city. And most of the big cities, if you trapped them in, didn't have water or a very limited supply of water. They'd stop up the streams that would go into the cities. But the bigger problem was always food. You put you know, several uh, thousands of people in the, in the tens of thousands or even in the hundreds of thousands in a city and you surround them, food is going to run out quickly. Okay? And that's one of the scares that people have had going looking into our future. You know, if the economy crashes, where will we, how will we feed ourselves? And this is a critical thing to consider, especially for us Americans who are used to eating three big meals a day. Now, we don't have our breakfast, lunch, and dinner and have plenty of it. We feel like we're starving. Well, when the economy crashes and things go bad, we're going to be in trouble because most of us can't grow food and even if you tried, the food has been genetically engineered that you cannot grow food from the food that you buy at the store. Uh, you have to buy special seeds that will grow food that will be able to be planted, planted from. And you know, we, they, they're talking a lot about genetically modified foods and stuff. Uh, but the problem is it's been going on for decades without, it's been going under the radar for decades. And we, we have this problem with it. And so we have a place where we're being set up for starvation. And we're at the end time, so it's going to be interesting. It's been a military uh, maneuver to do diverting water to a uh, castle or whatever. The Angus Khan used that. He diverted yeah. it to this beautiful area, but the people were dying of thirst. The water has always been diverted. That's why you've always had engineers and military. So, yep. So, verse 29 is talking about these times when there's going to be cannibalism going on. You know, where they eat their own children because they're so hungry. And we've seen this, and if you read through, there's all kinds of places. There's several places, at least three that I can think of, where there's cannibalism that goes on in Jerusalem because they're under siege. And... It's prophesied here. You know, if you're going to walk contrary to me, I'm going to walk contrary to the place where you'll have no food. And you, you're thinking about this. The people are hearing it. They're saying, yes, we're going to obey you. And then they're being told that you know, there's going to come a time. And they're not looking at this as a prophecy, but they're looking at, well, if you disobey me and you keep disobeying me, this is what's going to happen. And then it says, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols 
and my soul will abhor you. Okay, so this is very strong. Abhor is a very, very strong word. It means to be sickening, that you're sickened when you see something. Uh, it is so bad, so terrible, that we are sickened by it. And the, the problem that we have in our day and our, in our world is, through the television and the movies, people have been exposed to so much graphic violence and, and graphic sexual activities that when we first saw them, we were abhorred by them, and now we're getting so used to them that they're no longer that, oh, how awful, you know, and even to the point where people are being entertained by them. And God is saying, you know, if you want to keep that up, I'm going to, you know, cast your dead bodies upon those altars. And we know that all through the time when they've rejected God, they built these altars, they built these groves. Uh, in, in Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they're always going to have, have uh, idols in their, in their territory. Always. For the whole time they split between after Solomon to the time they're taken into captivity. Judah is going to go back and forth, but they almost always have idols as well, except under two kings who actually go out and destroy every idol. Okay? So idol worship is going to be very prominent all through Israel throughout their entire times. And God's starting them out saying, don't do it. Okay? And we already know that they're prone to go into idols. You know, Moses went up on the mountain, was spent 40 days, came back, and what are they doing? They're worshiping an idol. Yeah. Okay? Uh, they've made a golden calf, and they're worshiping this golden calf. And when Moses comes down off the... The hill, what he sees is so bad that he, it angers him so much because of the sexual perversion that's going on with the, sex, with the uh, worship of the golden calf and the orgy that they were having in the camp and, you know, and running around naked and everything. And he comes off this mountain after having spent 40 days with God and sees this area that just is so abhorrent to anybody who's righteous and they see this and all of a sudden he just gets angry with them and he said God says when you start doing that I'm going to abhor you and it says verse 31 I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries into desolation I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors what is he referring to on sweet odors huh well, the sacrifices, remember so many of the, the sacrifices said, it is a sweet odor unto me. The, just the whole sacrifice that they were doing. And he's saying, even if you sacrifice, I'm not, I'm not going to even smell it. I'm not going to pay attention to it. Why? Because they're so, so much into their sin and they're, and they're just doing these things as rituals. And this is where, we can, where we've talked about it. Christians can get into this whole idea of, I've come to God, but now I'm, I'm living you know, some sinful lifestyle, but I still come to church every week you know, so that I can please God. And God's saying, no, you're walking contrary to me. I don't care what else you do. I don't care if you're reading your Bible every day. You're going to church every time the doors are open when you're leading a lifestyle that you know is a sin. And God says, this is a sin, and you're still leading that lifestyle. God says, I don't care about all that other stuff. It's just not going to do it. And, and this is what he's saying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy your cities. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring your sanctuary into desolation. And we see two times where the temple is going to be destroyed. 
The Babylonians come and destroy it. The Rome comes and destroys it. Uh, you know, and this is what ends up happening. Their very temples are going to be destroyed. Why? Because they're walking contrary to God, and God says, I've had enough. And we talked about it. God is an extremely patient individual. But when he has had enough, he's had enough. I used to do this in the restaurants. I would come up to somebody who is just not working. I'm going, uh, do I need to find you a job? And they go, no, no, I can find something. I'm going, I see you standing around again. I find you your next job. And I, and I come back around the corner later on, and that person's standing around. Okay, I want you to clean. And I pick the dirtiest job in the, in the store. And they go, no, no, I'm going. I'm going, ah, I told you to stay busy. You didn't stay busy. Now you get to do what I want you want to have done. And this is the way God's going to be. You know, I've given you rules. I expect you to be obedient. And, but he's much more patient than mine. Mine was a one-strike rule. God has got many strikes before he says, I've had enough. And once he starts moving on that, I've had enough, you know, you're out of luck. You know, this is when Noah walks into the ark and God closes the door and floods the world. Yeah, and, only eight, and only eight people are left alive. Well, this is when Babylon comes in and conquers the country and takes them all captive. This is when Assyria comes in and conquers them and carries them captive. All that goes on, and God says, up until now, you've had plenty of chances, but now enough is enough. It is done. I'm taking, taking ju uh, judgment. Verse 30, 32. And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. This is what happens when God moves against somebody. People, the world looks and says, oh, you know, these, these, this is what happens to disobedient followers of him. And you've got to think about, what is this going to mean to these individuals who aren't following God? They're going to have one of two reactions. Well, we knew there was nothing special about them anyway. Or there's going to be a real de desperation of, wow, if he can judge his own people that way, <laughs> what is going to come to us? And they'll go, they'll go both directions. You know, but God is doing that, and it will bring, our, bring enemies into astonishment. In verse 33, I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Scattered among the nations. And the Jews were scattered on two occasions among the nations. After the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquered them, they were scattered. They were taken out of their land and moved all around the world. And that is what both countries did. They would conquer a place and they would, they would move the people from one location to another location, move people from that location into their town. And it was done for very strong reasons. Number one, if you weren't in your home land, you had nothing really to defend. And if you had multiple strangers around you, it made it harder to form an army to, to withstand against them. Plus the fact that you really didn't care about the land you were in. And this was a, this was a way that people were controlled when they were captured. Uh, America's saddest, saddest day in American history is when they did the Trail of Tears and they moved the East Coast Indians west and the West Coast Indians to the east and made it so that they tried to kill, basically trying to kill them because of changing their environment. You know, take, take forest and, and swamp Indians and put them out in the desert you know, where they don't know how to get water. You put desert Indians in the middle of the, 
the, the wet areas, and they don't know how to handle that either. So it was a very, very sad thing, and it came from this type of mentality. Disperse everybody. The other dispersal came after the Romans, after 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Israel and spread them out, and they were not a nation all the way until 1948 when they became a nation again. And that is, again, prophesied in the scripture. It says, will, will, a nation, will a people become a nation in a day? And the answer to that question was, yes, they did. And one day they became a nation. They were declared a nation, and all of a sudden they were, had a home for, for the Jews. And the amazing... They passed by one boat. <laughs> they passed, though. <laughs> and, uh, and they were brought back. But God said, you will be scattered, and your land will be waste. Verse 34, and then your land shall enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lies desolate, and you, and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. So this is, this is that whole story of why were they sent into captivity? Because they did not honor the land's Sabbaths. And this is a prophecy you know, this is a prophecy. God, God is saying that it will happen. He knew that they were going to work, walk contrary to him. Even though at this point, they're totally planning on being obedient. And hopefully we as Christians don't go into disobedience on purpose. You know, uh, in my case, I very rarely ever go, God, I'm just going to go sin because I feel like sinning today. Uh, now, I have done that on a rare occasion. I'm just going to sin because I'm just in a bad mood and I don't care. I'm just going to do it. It's been a long time. Usually we sin because we just kind of make bad decisions. And the next thing we know, we're, we're in a place of sin and making a choice to sin. And a big mess because of it. Uh, we've walked away from God. We've walked away from his decisions. We're not honoring, honoring his day. We're not honoring him. And we're into trouble. And... We, we look at this, Jeremiah 25. And this whole land shall be desolate and an, an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years, and it shall come to pass when the seventy years are accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation and for their iniquities in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. So here is God saying through Jeremiah, Babylon is going to take you into captivity. They're going to take you into captivity for seventy years. And turn to Jeremiah 29. Verse. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you in causing you to return to this place. So God said, you're going to return. You're going to return. And then we'll take a look at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years 
whereof the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer, then supplication and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So when the Jews were sent into captivity, they knew exactly how long they were going to be in captivity. And it, it's quite an interesting thing because later on, if you, as, as we're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophecies in Isaiah told, spoke of Cyrus being God's shepherd and sending his people back to build the temple. That prophecy was made over a hundred years before Cyrus was born and before the Medo-Persian Empire was more than just a little speck on a map. God saying that Cyrus of the Medes and Persians will send my people back to build the temple. Now, and you want to talk about when God gives a prophecy, he makes it very specific. There's no, there's no, in God's prophecies, there's none of this, you know, well, well, maybe it could mean this, maybe it could mean that. Uh, you know, we're told in Micah that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. You know, we're, we're told that he would be called a Nazarene, which didn't make any sense because if he was born in Bethlehem, why would he be called a Nazarene? And we know why, you know, and now that we look at it in the after, in the after, uh, after the events. But God is saying these things are going to happen. And he's, and he's being very specific. He's going, you will be paying for into captivity to, because you're going to fail to keep my Sabbaths. You know, you would think that when the Jews read this that they might get a little light in their head saying, let's keep the Sabbath because God is serious about this. Uh, you get in Jeremiah's time saying, you're going to be sent into captivity for 70 years because you didn't keep my Sabbath. You might get this idea that let's repent and keep his Sabbath. Uh, you know, but God was straight up with people and they totally forgot it half the time. And the sad thing about this is when you read about this, you read in Kings and Chronicles that the temple got into such a bad state that the Levites didn't even worship in the temple many times under some of these kings. And then they would go clean it up and they'd find the book of the law. Kings, I've, I've, I've got them being kings. I just couldn't believe how many times there were so many bad kings that just trashed the temple. Used it as a trash place for many of them. And they would clean it out and they'd find the law. And then they'd read the law. And the king that was already sensitive to God all of a sudden realizes that, wow, we are, you know, we have been disobedient. We deserve to be totally destroyed. And then they will go into, you know, call, it, call for repentance and offer sacrifices and try to get God to say, you know, don't, don't, don't judge us. And it was all given in these first five books. God says, here's your rules. I know you're not going to obey them. Here's what's going to happen. And, you know, this is just an amazing thing for us. And yet we do the same thing as Christian. Here's our rules. Here's what we're supposed to do. You know, and we don't have near the 613 laws that they do. We have certain laws. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery or, you know, fornication, you know, homosexuality, all the sins that are out there. But what I think is so amazing is that God knows what we're going to do before, so all these laws, he knows what we're going to... Predestination. He knows that we're going to break them. Understand that. That he, so he knew that we were going to break them, and yet he created us, and yet he sent Jesus to die for us, knowing that we were still going to break the laws. That is so amazing. 
Um, gives them a chance, and then they fail. Gives them a chance. The love of God for us is so amazing to me. Because I can tell you, you know, I look around me and say, there is nothing worth, even, even me, there's nothing worth having done this, God. Why would you have done this? And it's an amazing thought to even think about it. Why you know would what? God do it? I'm thinking back. I'm glad he did. <laughs> 30 before I moved to Korai. So he needs to think that I was doing him. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> then it says, your land shall observe, observe her Sabbaths. Enjoy her Sabbaths. Verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. So God is already telling them, you, you, I mean, I just told you a couple chapters ago we learned about the Sabbath rest, and God's saying, by the way, you're not going to keep it, and I'm going to send you into judgment because you're not keeping the land Sabbath. And, he, and at this point, they're, they're thinking, well, we're going to obey, you know. You know uh, and all through this, you know, in uh, Exodus, they were saying, whatever you say, we will obey. And I'm sure those same words were coming out at this time, you know. Yes, amen, yeah, right, yes, God, we're... We're going to obey your laws. Oh God, you know, I know you're telling us all these warnings, but no, you're not. You know, they're not going to. You're never going to have problems with us or our kids. Yeah. You know, and yet God is telling them. And if you look at the language here, this isn't when you. If you do this, that it's when you do this. This is what's going to happen. This is a prophecy. He's slipped out of just telling them what's going to happen into a prophecy time. Uh, you, when you do this, this is what's going to happen. Verse 36, And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness in their hearts, in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of the shaken leaf will chase them, and they shall flee as if fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. Now this is talking about some pretty big cowardice. <laughs> you know, he says, I'm going to make you faint-hearted, you know, which means to be afraid, weakened. But then we look at it and he says, you know, in the hearts of your enemies, the sound of a shaken leaf will chase them. You know, they're, they're so afraid that the leaf rustling <laughs> makes them run. This is, and we see this at various times in their history when, when they will be hiding and we look at Gideon. Gideon's called by God to defend him and, you know, where's Gideon when he's called? He's in this big vat, <laughs> threshing the wheat because he's afraid of the enemy. And God says, I want you to go destroy the altar of Baal. And he goes, uh-uh, no way, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then when God finally tells him to go do it, he finally does it in the middle of the night in the dark, you know, so nobody can know that it was him. Uh, you know, and this happens over and over and over again. We look at David visiting King Saul. They're ready for a battle and out comes the champion Goliath saying, hey, rather than having a war, we'll just, we'll just fight man on man, you know, whoever, and they're quaking in their boots. <laughs> now, now, in that case, they might have a reason to quake in their boots. You know, there's a nine-foot nine foot six guy over there who's, uh, you know, carrying a, you know, 20 or 30-pound uh, spear in his hand, you know, and they're, and they're little, you know. And I know now he's not a little boy. That's right. He's not a little boy. He's a Young man. Yeah. But all these other soldiers, all these other soldiers with Saul are looking at him saying, uh-uh, we're not going out there. You know, fear. 
God struck fear into them because they weren't following him. And there were, there, we see this over and over and over again where people, where God says, okay, stand still and watch and I'll win this battle. And, and people will sit down and, and be so afraid. And it says the shaken leaf makes them and they will flee from a, as fleeing from a sword and they shall fall when none pursues because they're, they're running so helter-skelter, they're dying just from running away. And if you've ever seen some movie, war movie, a lot of times they'll show you these guys in full retreat. You know, they're just running away from the enemy. And a lot of times more of them get hurt running away from the enemy than if they had stood their ground and fought. Uh, and so and it's, God is saying, this is where it's going to be. You know, great fear will be upon those who are left. And they shall fall one upon another as if it were by before a sword, when none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. They, they have no strength. No strength. All through Judges we see this. They get into disobedience and they get, fall under subjection. They get disobedient, they fall into subjection. We see it also in Kings and, and Chronicles when they're, when they're made tributary of some, some other, other place. But God's promised them, when you're not following me, you won't even be able to stand against your enemies. And we see Israel, when it's following God, being victorious. The, you, you look at since 1948 when Israel became a nation, and, and this is a great blessing to them because right now they are not truly following God in their, even in their own country. But God has made them victorious against their enemies. And it's an amazing thing when you look at anything good that's said about any weaponry is usually at the hands of the Israelites. You know, Israel uses them and gets tremendous, thing, you know, tremendous results out of these weapons more than any other, any other country. And they get victorious. And God's given them grace right now because if they don't follow him, then they're gonna let, he's going to let them fall before their enemies just as he's promised. But right now he's given them grace and they're able to stand against their enemies. And it's kind of amazing to hear the stories of the different battles that Israel has fought. You know, the enemy looking up and they see angels behind the, the army that's standing in front of them and, and surrendering and giving up because they, they see something they can't beat. Bombs dropping and not exploding. You know, God is protecting the Israelite people right now in spite of them not obeying him. Because uh, I can be very sure that they're not honoring the Sabbath rest for their land right now. And probably haven't for the entire time they've been there. And yet God's given them blessings. He's allowing them to have blessings right now. And you shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. In other words, they're going to be sent to other lands and, and basically kind of diminish. And we see a lot of this with the Jews, where even to this day, they're, they're, they're Jews in most cases in name only. You know, they were born a Jew, they're a Jew. And they're not practicing. They're not following any of the laws. The, matter of fact, they can't practice most of it because they don't have a temple or a tabernacle to make the offerings in. Yeah. So, so Jews nowadays are they following this law, or are they not following? Not really. It depends. It, it depends. It depends. Your your ultra orthodox are following it as close as they can, or feel that they can. But they're very much like the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. They have all these little loopholes and, and, you, you know, uh, and 
tricks to say I'm obeying even though they're not, and then they'll tell you that you're not obeying when you are obeying better than they are. Uh, but for the most part right now, the Jews fall under the idea that if you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay with God and be acceptable before him because you can't offer sacrifices. And this is it's been put down by the rabbis in the Mishnah because they're looking at, you know, since the temple was destroyed, it's, they would come up how, especially on this time of year when, when the Day of Atonement comes, Rosh Hashanah, you know, how do oh, we... They have no temple over there. There's no temple, no sacrifice. And they know that to have their sins forgiven, they have to go to the temple and put their hands on the, on the scapegoat and put, confess their sins over the scapegoat and the other goat, the one goat is killed, the scapegoat is sent out. And they know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, even though they will now tell you that that's not what that verse says, even though it says it very clearly. They'll just say, because there is no, there is no chance to shed the blood, therefore, you know, as long as you try to do good and you do mostly good, you're okay. And that's where they have to go, because there is no sacrifice. We as Christians look back and say, Jesus fulfilled the law, and he is the last and the real sacrifice for sin. And if we look to him for our sin, sin bearer, then we are atoned for because of that sacrifice in the blood. And so we look at it and say the law has been fulfilled. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will fade away until all be fulfilled. And when he went to the cross, uh, and when Jesus fulfilled the, fulfilled the law and completed it, it didn't mean the law was totally thrown away. It just meant that it was fulfilled. And we are saved through Jesus' sacrifice. And this is why it's important for us, because the, God says that when you disobey me, I'm, I'm going to send you amongst the enemies. They're going to, they're going to change you. And the Jews have been changed over the years. Now, the amazing thing is how much they stayed together at the same time. Uh, when they didn't have a country for you know, 1,900 years almost, to be able to maintain their Jewishness is an amazing thing. All the things that make them Jews, the Passover, the celebrations, the festivals, you know, now, granted, they're, they're doing them just out of ritual and, and all of this, but to have kept all of that is an amazing thing. Well, because it became important to them. They did a good job raising up their children. A better job than most Christian families do of raising up our children. You know, we don't, we, we're, it's been said we're one generation away from the Christian church no longer existing, and it's true. If we don't teach our children and our nieces and our nephews and our grandchildren the message of the gospel, we can lose it. And we're in a generation where we are being actively attacked in the school system and in the television world. And then we wonder why our kids don't believe. Uh, you know, we put them in these institutions that are brainwashing them into humanism and in and into the, the ways of the world, and then we wonder why our kids don't believe the gospel message. We have a sweet little girl who's grown to 23 that tells me the Bible is a fairy story. Mm -hmm. But can't point to anything that they would say is a fairy story yeah. or give good concrete reason for it. And we're raising up a generation in this country that believes what they're told and have been taught not to question anything that they're taught. 
Uh, when I first moved to Kingman, I used to drive my niece and my nephew crazy, and I'm going, why do you believe what you just said? Well, I was told this by my teacher, and I go, okay, well, what is the proof? Why do you believe what you believe? And it used to drive them nuts because I was making them have to think, and they're being trained in school not to think. And the sad thing is that the colleges used to be a place where you could think and, and throw out different ideas, and you can't do it anymore. You can as long as it doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. You know, Republican. Yeah, or conservative uh, is another area. But they're being trained to just be puppets. Believe what you're told and don't question or don't want reasons for it. Well, there's that, there is that idea that people are computers that you just program. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's actually taught. They're a blank slate. You had to teach them to be bad. You had to teach them to be, to be good. And then you teach them to do what you want them to do. And it is a really sad place because I can tell you I, I've had four kids and, and a number of uh, other relatives that I've watched. And I don't remember any of my kids or any other young child being taught to be bad. I never said, okay, this is how you be bad. <laughs> they, they managed to do that very well on their own. Okay, very well on their own. They didn't need me to teach them, okay, here's how you get selfish. Every kid starts out selfish. They're not taught to be selfish. They are selfish. Uh, every, every baby is demanding. It wants what it wants, and it wants it yeah. now. Okay. Uh, you know, and they, until we teach them a little bit of discipline on that, then they will be selfish the rest of their life if we don't teach them. So this is why it's important. The world is teaching everybody that everybody's good until we teach them to be bad. And you know how they tell us that we're teaching them to be bad? Because we give them rules. We give them rules to have to follow. So therefore, we're teaching them to be bad because they, they have the desire to break the rules, which tells you they have a sin nature. If you're going to have a desire to break rules and you have a sin nature and you have that nature to, to, to be bad. And so, you know, their very proof of how we're teaching them to be bad shows them that they're bad to start with. Uh, but they don't see it that way. And it's fun. It's kind of fun sometimes to get into these discussions with them because they don't see that they don't see. They don't see that they say diametrically opposite statements in the same sentence a lot of times. Well, within five minutes, they're all over the place saying opposites, and they don't see that they're opposites because they're just spouting out information that they were told to speak and to say. And this is where God's saying, you know, the enemy will eat you up. Verse 39, and they that are left shall pine away in their iniquities in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers, and they shall pine away with them. Pining, that's not a word we use very much in this, this day and age, but pining is that, that wasting away in sorrow. You're so sad that it makes you sick. And he's saying, you know, those, are, those that are, are in enemy lands and those that are even left, in, they're just going to pine away. They're just going to be so sorrowful, so they're just going to, waste away in their, in their sorrow. And this happens a lot of times, you know, when somebody loses, especially that first love, they'll usually get into that pining away. You know, they're just so sorrowful. The whole world has come to an end. It'll never, the sun's never going to shine again. The, 
uh, nothing will ever be good, and, they, and they'll stay in that state sometimes for, for a long time. Uh, and then God's saying, this is the way it's going to be. In your iniquities, you're going to say, you're just going to pine away in sorrow. Verse 40, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and of their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then they, their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. So God is saying, okay, I've shown you the blessings. I've shown you, the, you know, what will happen when you disobey. This is what you are going to do. You're going to be disobedient. And I'm going to come. And it says, if then you will confess your iniquities and the iniquities of your father and their trespasses and that they also have caught contrary to me and that I have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. Okay, he says, first you confess, you repent. Confess. Confession is a quite a powerful word because it literally means to agree with God that there's a problem. Okay? How many times have you come to some, found somebody and they'll tell you they're sorry, but what are they really sorry for usually? That they got caught. You know, I got caught, I'm being punished, now I'm sorry. That's not what confession is talking about. This idea of confession and repentance is, God, I really agree with you that this is a problem. This is that part of salvation that comes in. God, I am a sinner. I may be a pretty good person compared to a lot of people, but I am a sinner. And have a certain problem. And have problems. On that Yeah. Uh, I have a sin. I have a sin. I deserve punishment because of my sin. And this is what he's saying. That confession, that repentance. God, we are, God, we've, we, we've really messed up. We, we've, we've had all kinds of iniquities. We've had all kinds of problems. And then God says, and if their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they accept the punishment of their iniquity. Again, that first we confess that we've done wrong and then we say, God, you know, yes, we're being punished and we deserve it. Or we should be punished more. You know, whichever, whichever way you want to look at it, both are true. I have sinned. I deserve punishment. I deserve more punishment than whatever I've had. And we humble ourselves. And we accept Jesus' sacrifice, and he comes in. And he says, Then I remember the covenant of, with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. This is precious. God's saying, the Jews make their stand on who they are because Abraham was selected and given a covenant. The covenant was repeated to Isaac. And then it was repeated again to Jacob. And then again, it was repeated in, to the whole, whole of the people on Mount Sinai. Okay? But their whole basis is that God took one family and repeatedly gave the promise. And we know that David is given the same, same promise later on. But David, of course, is not going to be mentioned here because he has not, he's not even a glimmer in anybody's eye at this moment. <laughs> you know, uh, 
And he's saying, I will remember if you repent, if you humble. No matter what God's doing for us, if we will repent and we will humble ourselves, he comes and he delivers. In, in Chronicles it says, if my people that are called by, according to my name will humble themselves and repent and call unto me, I will deliver their land. Now that was specifically to the Jews, but it is pretty much to anybody who is his people who will call out. If we're going to have a revival in today's world, we need to humble ourselves as Christians, confess our sins and humble ourselves and repent and call unto God to re for, for revival. I almost think it's too late for, for a nationwide or a worldwide revival. I'd love to be wrong on that. Believe me, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to have my kids have kids and their kids have kids because of a revival. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're too close to the end time for it to happen. But we can have local revivals. We can have revivals in towns. We can have revivals in neighborhoods of cities. We can have revival if the church will repent, humble itself, and call upon God. And just as he says, I will remember them. And it says, verse 43, And the land shall also be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, and she while she lies desolate without them, and they shall accept the punishment of their iniquity, because even because, of, even because they despise my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Okay, and this is, again, that abhorring. You know, think about this. God's saying they abhorred his statutes. They're abhorring what's good. You realize in this day, in this world, we're having people call good bad, bad good. Now, we have people that abhor anything that is righteous in this world. This is a picture of what God is saying. They abhorred my statutes. And we see it everywhere. Anytime a Christian will stand up and say, I've got to take a stand, what are they being told? Well, you're just a bigoted, bigoted person who just won't accept all these people that are walking in contrary to your, your beliefs. Well, they're not my beliefs to begin with. They're God's beliefs, and they're walking contrary to God's belief. The fact that you abhor God's belief does not mean that I'm going to change. But they don't understand. The world does not understand the Christian taking a stand on what God says because they don't understand that it is a God thing. Because they don't have any absolute rules. They don't have any absolute rules other than the statement that there are no absolutes. Which makes no sense anyway because that is an absolute statement that there are no absolutes. And it makes it logically illogical. Now, if there are, if you cannot make a statement that there are absolutely no absolutes, because that statement would be absolutely wrong. Okay. And if it's absolutely wrong, that means there's absolutes. <laughs> you know, no matter how you look at it, there's absolutes. And there has to be. There has to be. And God says that right here. In verse 44, and yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake, for, for their sakes, remember the covenant of, of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Zion by the, by, uh, Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. God says that even for all their disobedience, even for all of his punishment, 
he was not going to forget. He's not going to forget the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not going to make, forget the covenant that he made by taking them out of Egypt. He's not going to forget the covenant from, the, from bringing them into, onto Mount Sinai. God will not forget and will not get so angry that he will destroy everything. We see it in the time of Noah when he went down to just eight people, one family. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. When he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and he pulls Lot and his daughters out of the city before he destroys it. The remnant will always be protected. We have Elijah saying, you know, Elijah, excuse me, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed my knee before, before the idols. And God says, no, I've got hundreds of people that haven't bowed their knees. You know, quit, quit having a pity party, Elisha. You know, there's plenty of people out there that haven't, you're not the only one. Uh, we see this Jonah being sent to Nineveh to, to, to bring the Ninevites to, to a salvation place. We see this even in the end days of the tribulation where most of the population is going to be destroyed, but some will make it through and live in the millennial kingdom. Now I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. Is the rapture going to come before then or after then? Seven years before that. Okay. We, we will be gone. The tribulation period will go through, and those who have made it through the tribulation period Alive without taking the mark of the beast. What if, you're all, what if you're already dead? I mean, you've been dead, historically dead, because you know you live a long time. Ago. You're in heaven already. You, you will be in heaven. It says Paul said the dead will rise first, and then those of us that are alive shall be caught up. So yes, you, your spirit will be there right then. Then you'll get your glorified body at the rapture if you're already dead, and you will go first. <laughs> you'll go. You'll start up. I don't know how many seconds, you know, microseconds or whatever ahead, but you'll be slightly ahead. I think uh, it was asked before, I mean, like, say the rapture, whatever time, say I live to be 90. I don't want to be 90. <laughs> who, know, who knows what age? No, no, that's what I mean. That's a hard question. You will be at an age, I believe that you will be at an age where your body will be as perfect as you could be, whatever that age was for you. Yeah, uh, Huh? Probably you're somewhere in your 20s for most people. That was when their body was at its at its peak, at its best, usually at its best looking, unless they really were abusive to their body. Uh, but no, you're not going to be a 90 year old all through all through eternity. Yeah. Because I said I don't want to die young, so then I'll be young when I grow up. But but you know, it, it brings us to questions like that. That says, okay, how how will I be known to everybody? You all know me as a 54-year-old pastor. There's people that I knew when I was in my 20s that know me in a totally different body, a totally different way of walking and acting and, and a different level of spiritual life. God will put an identity in us and people will know who we are. A computer chip. <laughs> no, I don't think it will be a computer chip. <laughs> He, he, will he will download whatever information we need, but it won't be a computer chip. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us and that you care for us. We ask that you go with us as we, as we go, go about our daily life and that you will lead us and guide us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.